If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. For most people, nonprofits exist in two very separate universes from for-profits. But according to the Stanford Social Innovation Review, there has been a growing trend of combining nonprofits and for-profits. This trend was triggered, really, in 2008 by the recession, and it was sort of triggered as a way to reduce reliance on donations and grants and help organizations that are working for the greater good to become more financially sustainable. You may have heard of a few of these hybrid organizations. They are frequently job training or microloan programs that combine a nonprofit and a for-profit. Let me share with you listeners, today's guest, Angela Huey, knows all about these hybrid organizations firsthand. She is the co-founder and president of One Community Foundation in Arizona, and that is a coalition of socially responsible businesses and organizations moving diversity, inclusion, and equity forward for all Arizonans. A few years after founding the for-profit One Community, she also went on to found the nonprofit One Community Foundation, which provides educational opportunities to ensure better understanding of non-discrimination and the importance of being LGBTQ plus inclusive. Angela joins us today to discuss how to create business plans that utilize both the nonprofit model and the for-profit model. I need to share with you that I had the pleasure of getting to know Angela while serving as the Interim Executive Director of the Southwest Center, which is about a $4.5 million nonprofit serving communities affected by HIV-AIDS in Phoenix. I was always impressed at Angela's boundless energy and ability to bring business, nonprofit, government, and community leaders together to solve seemingly intractable problems. There were many times that Angela and I would be sitting around a table and it became very clear to everyone around that table that 
there isn't the word no for Angela. She is going to make it happen because she is committed to seeing inclusion and diversity and making it a success in Arizona. So please join me in welcoming Angela to the podcast. Hey, Angela, welcome. I'm so thrilled to get you on the podcast. Oh, Joel, I cannot thank you enough for the opportunity. Now, I got to ask you, I feel pretty confident there's a good origin story around your business, One Community, and the nonprofit. There really is. And uh, it, I, I never tire from telling this story because um, I think that so much about uh, so much of what we do comes from really good listening. And so we were just listening about 13 years ago. And I actually was working for a media company in the Hispanic community. And I had a lot of Hispanic community relations peers. And they all went through title changes. They all became multicultural. And I was out at work. And this is over a decade ago. So that was not as normal as it is in these parts. Not everyone was out and felt comfortable enough just being their authentic selves. But I was fortunate. I was out. My peers and these community relations folks that I worked with knew that I happened to be a member of the LGBTQ community. And so when I saw them go through these title changes and become multicultural community relations managers, I asked them if they had money for the LGBTQ community. And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. And then the next question was, what are you doing with it? Like, where's your investment? And overwhelmingly, that answer was, we don't understand the diversity and the complexity and just really the community. And so we don't understand how really to advertise or how to engage the LGBTQ community. And my partner at the time, we weren't able to be legally married 13 years ago, uh, but, you know, did legally marry in 2008 when it was available. Sherry and I just had a long talk and, you know, we just felt that we didn't fit really neatly into all these boxes that the LGBTQ community had. We were, we felt that there was a void. And so we just sat at our dining room table over several months and did as much research as we could find and created what was the really the first evolution of one community. And what we saw in the little bit of research that was available really in 2006, 2007, and in 2008 was that when people knew us, their propensity to vote against us plummeted. So it didn't matter what your religious beliefs were or what your political beliefs may be. When you knew someone that was LGBTQ, where you stood on issues such as fairness and equity was pretty simpatico because as I like to say, we're just as boring as everyone else. So that was the precipice for starting one community. We wanted to create an opportunity where people that weren't LGBTQ community members could get to know us as consumers and as professionals in your ranks, because as we like to say, we're all Arizonans, right? And so we wanted to make sure that the business community really understood that we were a positive you know, community community and that we brought great value to the overall Arizona conversation. And so that's how we started One Community. Angela, the vast majority of people who would have started One Community would have started it as a nonprofit. What made you decide to start it as a for-profit? Well, two reasons. Um, my wife and I put our life savings into it, like literally emptied out our 401k. So that's how much we believed in it. But also my background was media. And I just think that we're all selling something. So from a one community standpoint, we're selling diversity, inclusion, and equality for all Arizonans. We're selling a connectivity to LGBTQ and allied consumers and professionals, right? And our original tagline was you vote with your wallet every day, right? So support businesses that are LGBTQ inclusive. So 
our backgrounds led us to starting a for-profit. One Community, its actual name is One Community Media because we wanted to have the opportunity through events and promotional opportunities. And now there's a radio show and my background is in storytelling as well and videography and, and filmmaking. We just thought that we were selling the value of the LGBTQ community. So we didn't understand nonprofits and how they really worked. And it just seemed like this was a for-profit entity. And as you said, you were literally putting your entire life savings into it. And that's not something that you can do into a nonprofit because you're never going to get that money back. Right. Did you get any pushback after starting one community as a for-profit? Did you have any businesses that would say, well, you're really a for-profit? Or did you have any maybe nonprofit community partners who were hesitant because you're a for-profit? You know, that's a great question, Dolph. So the business community overwhelmingly gave us no pushback. The LGBTQ community gave us a great deal of pushback because they thought that we should be a nonprofit. And actually, when we first came to market, 10% of all memberships went to, um, and it's, it's interesting because we're doing a remodel on our, on our house right now. And so I was just going through some old paperwork in my office and you could see we had a checkbox and you could give 10% of your membership. We would port over to four LGBTQ inclusive nonprofits. So from the moment that we came to market, we weren't just doing well, we were doing good too. And I did not believe that doing good work was dependent on our tax filing status. We believed it was basically on how actionable we were in our follow through and really moving important conversations forward, which is what we're known for. Was there a moment or a point where LGBTQ nonprofits said, okay, we get it. You aren't just trying to exploit your membership in the community? Yeah, that's a great question uh, as well. So interestingly enough, when we started One Community, we figured it would take a couple years to take hold because we thought that it was really a disruptive idea, right? We were a disruptive organization. And so we knew that we had to build trust. And so we figured it would probably take a couple years. And so the plan was that I would consult for LGBTQ inclusive nonprofits during that time, because what I knew in media was, you know, uh, whoever the partner is, the client is, they would prefer to just have one point of contact than eight points of contact. So if we could represent some of these LGBTQ inclusive nonprofits as well and go to, you know, healthcare company XYZ and say, you shouldn't just be making a buying decision from a community relations or marketing standpoint on what programs or opportunities make sense at one community, but also look at Southwest HIV, look at one in 10, look at Phoenix Pride, Aunt Rita's and what have you, right? And so that I think, number one, was a better service to the client because they were creating a more consistent pattern within the LGBTQ community, which helped them build trust. And then also what we believed in the LGBTQ community was just that we were all starving. So it didn't matter if we were for-profit or not-for-profit, we needed more financial resources coming into the community. And so to be able to do that from a consultative standpoint, and I mean, there's a number of companies that we brought into the market who literally the first year didn't actually place marketing dollars or community relations dollars with one community, but instead place them with Phoenix Pride, who I consulted for, or place them with Aunt Rita's, who I consulted for. So we all do better when there's more financial resources to go around. And I just think overwhelmingly LGBTQ organizations over a decade ago 
we're hungry, really, really hungry. What I hear you saying is you sort of proved to the potential nonprofit partners that you are not there to take away their piece of the pie, that you could actually bring a few extra pies to the table. We're pie makers. Right, exactly. But we literally are, right? In so many ways, we're pie makers because we might be the entry point for um, organizations of all shapes and sizes because through our Unity Pledge or through another program or event, what matters is you're getting to know the LGBTQ community. And when you know us, you're going to love us. And We are a very diverse community and all of these diverse nonprofits have so many really unique offerings. And so the answer shouldn't be either or, the answer should be and, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Let's fast forward a little bit. So how many years were you a for-profit before you started the Nonprofit Foundation? So we launched One Community in December of 2008, and we went to file the paperwork for One Community Foundation in August, I want to say of 2011, but we didn't get the paperwork back that we were officially a 501c3 for like 22 months. It was during a period of, and we fast-tracked it, we paid extra, but there was a clog up at the IRS. So in the interim, we actually started our One Community uh, Foundation educational fund over at the Arizona Community Foundation. So we have three arms, right? So it took about three years before you just really decided to apply and applied to also have a nonprofit side. What was the impetus for that? What made you say, oh, you know, just being a for-profit's not going to do this. I need a nonprofit as well. So we created a uh, multicultural advisory board and we had business members that were allies that came to us and said, one community's value proposition is unique. We've just never seen an organization like this. And would you consider creating a foundation? Because we think that with your business connectivity, there could be some sort of a mentorship program where we have business mentorships for LGBTQ youth and, and you know young leaders. And would you consider this? And my point was, regardless of tax filing status, you're asking us to to have another business. And so the question is, does it make sense to have two sides of the house, both one community and one community foundation? And is there an opportunity for both of them to thrive? And what we did is we went out and asked other businesses that um, were business members if they would be supportive of us having a foundation side. And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. And that, again, it wasn't an either or, but that the opportunity to invest more in both sides of the house could be there, right? So it wasn't, we're going to take the investment from one community and move it to the foundation. It was, we see that you have have the opportunity to have properties that have a great return on investment on both sides of the house. So that could give us as your corporate partner, the opportunity to invest more in the overall umbrella that is one community. And so just to be clear, this means you fill out two sets of tax forms. You have two sets of books. Your nonprofit has a board. Your for-profit probably does not have a board. It has an advisory board, uh uh-huh. Oh, your for-profit also has an advisory board. Okay, wait, now you got to tell us about that. Yeah. So we created the advisory board really because we wanted to hear from our community partner. Again, I believe that it's not about your tax filing status, about the, the work you're doing, right? 
Um, and so we created our multicultural advisory board, the most amazing MAB. And one of the questions we had was, does this make sense to have two sides of the house? So we've had an advisory board, uh, again, since 2011 and created that advisory board at first because we wanted to answer the question of, does it make sense for us to have a foundation? So yeah, we've had the MAB for, for years and we have a millennial advisory council on the one community side as well because we want to be good mentors to our up and coming leaders. I absolutely love this, but you've only created more questions for me. So you're mad. Your multicultural advisory board, which is on the for-profit side of your house, are those volunteer members? Are they paid members? They're volunteers, yeah. And was it difficult to get them to volunteer for a for-profit? No, not at all. I think what matters really is people care about whether or not they care about the organization and the work that the organization's doing. And for us, it's an advisory board, so it's not an overly heavy lift. It, you know, we meet six times a year. We always look for opportunities for our MAB to get involved and from a leadership standpoint. You know, one community handles the advocacy that we do, right? So when we are doing a, a letter writing campaign against a horrible bill like HB 2706, that happens on our one community side of the house. And so we always give our MAB members the opportunity to add their names or if we have speaking opportunities, you know, to be there. But I think overwhelmingly folks care about the organization. It's not about, again, your tax filing status. I love this. So got more questions though. Help me understand. So you are the CEO of One Community, the for-profit corporation. Are you also the CEO of One Community Foundation? I am. I'm the president of both. And talk to me now about your nonprofit board. Is there much overlap between your advisory board from the for-profit side and the non-profit side, what does that look like? The foundation board members also sit on the map. And is it identical? Is so if you've got, are they the same 10 people? What does that look like? No, it's, uh, our foundation has a smaller board, the MAB, because it's such an, I, because I think it's a joyful and not overly cumbersome lift, the MAB just has a year sign up. And then if you want to stay on the MAB, you stay on it. So the MAB has grown to the place where, you know, we have 30 diverse LGBTQ and allied leaders with just a variety of wonderful professional experiences and backgrounds to really lend their their wisdom to the conversations that we have. And then the foundation board is much smaller because we're hyper-targeted on the work that we're doing. Are you on the foundation board as well? Yes. And how does that work in terms of conflicts of interest? Do all board members disclose the conflicts of interest or how do you handle that piece? We have an odd number of board members and we make sure that um, if there's things that I shouldn't vote on, that I don't vote on them. Okay, totally fair. I love that. So it sounds like your foundation board, the nonprofit board, has a conflict of interest policy and you figured out how you're involved in the decisions you could be involved in and how you stay out of the ones that you shouldn't be involved in. Yep. That's awesome. Now, what have been some of the surprising difficulties that you have experienced as a result of having a for-profit side of your house and a non-profit side of your house? I think that the story we've been telling for a decade or more actually is people are usually surprised that one community is for-profit. So we always have to, we just are constantly telling our origin story and how we started and, you know, and how we separate the two sides of the house. And I think that 
really finding a thoughtful and cohesive way to talk about those things. And then remember that we have the unity pledge as well, which when we created it, we thought was so important that it deserved, all, it has all its own branding. All, it's got its own lane, right? So for us, it was really from a branding standpoint, how do you talk about the umbrella that is one community and really what the three pillars are at one community, which is one community, one community foundation, and then the Open AZ Unity Pledge, right? And so we have a rather large overview doc that talks about the programs and events on each side of the house. So I think it's a pretty clear map. That's really awesome. And what have you seen as some of the biggest benefits of having a for-profit and a non-profit kind of wed together? Well, you know, in certain circumstances, you might be working with a partner that has different kitties, right? And so depending on the year or depending on, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic right now. So in some cases, we might have a partner that has more money in one kitty than they have in another kitty. And so I think it allows the opportunity for them to invest in a way that is less stressful internally for some of our partner organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think what we really try and pride ourselves on is an answer for everyone. And everything we do at One Community starts really with a handshake and uh, a cup of coffee and not making any assumptions, right? And so our belief is that no matter who you are, if you want to be a participant in this conversation, there's a pathway forward for you. We don't care what side of the house it's on. We care about whether or not you want to be, you know, a part of the solution. And if you want to be a part of the group that's really going to move a sustainable Arizona forward because we become a state that actually includes everyone. As you look back, because gosh, you started one community dozen to 13 years ago. You started the foundation almost a decade ago. So as you look back, is there anything you would have done differently around structuring your for-profit and your nonprofit? Well, I think there's just a lot that we didn't know that we didn't know, right? Um, We're really thankful for our relationship with the Arizona Community Foundation because I will tell you that they have just been really great partners um, in particular because there are different rules and challenges um, on foundation sides than there are with for-profits. I'm also would say that we're really thankful. We have a very good compliance attorney. So I think that one of the most important things you can do is ask questions. And I'm not afraid to ask a lot of questions. Um, Our attorney says that we're really great clients because we ask questions before we make the mistakes. Right. And so I just always want to make sure that we've got very clear lines on both sides of the house. And and we do. And as long as we're open and transparent, and I think that we're not afraid to ask questions, we're going to get really good guidance. That's awesome. I love that. So it sounds like the big things that you would maybe do over is get a better sense of the things that you might not know going into it. So you'd be better prepared for it. Yeah. Because we've, what's so interesting about us, Dolph, is we've evolved into all of these things. So one community advocates, but we didn't start as an advocacy organization. You know, when you look at a traditional advocacy organization, they're going to have a C3, they're going to have a nonprofit side, they're going to have a C6 side, they might have a PAC. We have evolved into the opportunities that have been presented to us. And so we're in a constant state of evolution. And I think that really creates an unlimited landscape for us. But again, we are a hybrid organization because we didn't we didn't come out of the box as an advocacy organization. We came out of the box as a media company who believed in treating all people fairly. It does seem to me like being a for-profit on the for-profit side of your house and working with businesses 
businesses, I bet, interact differently with for-profits than they do with nonprofits? Um, I, you know, they certainly may. I think that the interaction that we've had, so when, when we started One Community, we knew that there just were not a lot of dollars at this time over a decade ago for minority-based organizations, regardless of what side of the house they were on. And so my whole thing was that we had to be really creative and create sponsorable programs where you could create an opportunity with a business who might say, well, we've got this much that can come from marketing and we've got this much that can come from community relations. And if we put the two together, we can come in and purchase this sponsorship to this program. And so that's what's been happening with us since our inception is that we found a way to work with marketing and community relations. Because again, regardless of what side of uh, your tax filing status, you can be doing good in the community. And so overwhelmingly, the work that one community has done has always fostered growth and inclusion in our LGBTQ and allied community. And so for us, it was about how creative can we be because there's not a lot of dollars to work with here to get different buckets of money working together with our corporate sponsor partners so that they could, again, community relations and marketing teams could come together and say, well, we're going to come in and sponsor XYZ program. As part of that, I think you've got a big summit this October. Yeah, we're very excited. It's our Unity Summit. So we think that what we have learned about One Community in our over decade of doing what I think is important, actionable work here in the great state of Arizona is that we're conveners. We're really good at bringing diverse voices to the stage and setting the stage for really thoughtful, important dialogue. And of course, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, a pandemic that harms minority communities' health more so. So if you look at the harm it's doing in the Black community and the Hispanic community and in the LGBTQ community, we are living in an unfortunate time as well where LGBTQ Americans are having healthcare benefits kind of stripped away under this current administration. So you have more fear, more concern about, you know, just being out and authentically who you are when you're visiting your doctor, much less under an emergency care situation, which is this global pandemic. Add to that that we have just, I think, a really robust uh, discussion that's happening because of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the hundreds of thousands of other people who have lost their lives at the hands of brutality. And so we have a responsibility to bring and build this stage. And that's what the Unity Summit is. And what I think is so amazing about our LGBTQ community is we are a part of every community right? We are every socioeconomic background. We are every culture. We are every religious belief or non-belief. And so we have that opportunity to create that connectivity and really create, uh, I think, a stage and a platform to bring diverse leaders together from hopefully around the nation, because everything is online right now, to have the thoughtful dialogue and how we move forward. We have done a good job, I think, of identifying the vulnerabilities that are in front of us as Arizonans and as Americans. We're not done, right? This is not the more perfect union that maybe we thought it was, but we can get there when we're willing to have the difficult dialogue on how we do this and how we're solution-based and how we get there together. So that's the Unity Summit. Hmm. How's that? That's really awesome. And I just have to reflect for listeners that, again, I've been around tables with you when I was working in Phoenix. And it's not just the Unity Summit. I really see you 
always looking to create opportunities for partners to move policy forward. Because as you said, we've not reached the more perfect union yet. And it's really clear that neither your for-profit nor your nonprofit is going to rest until we do. No way, right? I mean, I think that the kids are all right, Dolph. I really think that we just have to keep being good mentors to our generations that are coming up behind us. I think we've created a pathway for them to just help make this this state and this country and this world better. But we have to not blow things up before they get here, mm, right? Absolutely. Angela, I could talk with you for, gosh, another hour about this really unique hybrid that I actually think a lot of organizations, both for-profits and nonprofits, should be thinking about. But I want to make sure that I ask you the off-the-map question. Obviously, listeners have gotten to know you. They've gotten to know your passion already. But I want to ask you about your upbringing. I understand you grew up in Ohio. This is actually not something I knew about you until I was prepping for the interview. And I was not aware that when you were a child, Arabian horses figured pretty prominently in your life. They did. So I was very fortunate. We we grew up in a, a small one-stoplight town in Ohio. Uh, it was a beautiful farming community. And my parents' hobby was Arabian horses. So we had a 23-acre ranch. Um, and to grow up with their majestic beauty, uh, and just to it, it was just a fantastic way to grow up. Yeah, it was it was really cool. It was great to grow up on a farm, and it was great to grow up and spend so much time uh, outdoors and with these just really remarkable animals. And and we had, you know, we didn't just have horses, but uh, yeah, that was that was uh, a really unique and awesome way to grow up. And do you still have horses? Do you do anything with horses? So I would say horses brought us to the state of Arizona. We used to, when I was younger, we would come to Scottsdale for the big Arabian horse shows. Um, and my parents just thought that Arizona was the land of opportunity. So they, they packed us up from that 23 acre ranch. And uh, I lived in my, you know, in a subdivision uh, for the first time when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, that was vastly different for me. So I think Arabians uh, brought us to this great state and it's a state that I just love and I'm so so proud to call my home and we have such joy in, in working to make it the best state she can be every day. So oh my gosh, I adore the way you approach the work. I really do. Like you are positive, but you're also really positive about the fact that we're gonna move it forward. We're not gonna go backward. Yeah. Nowhere but up. That's awesome. Angela, I want to make sure that our listeners know all of the ways that they can reach out to you. So the first thing I want listeners to know is that they should absolutely visit onecommunity.co. Let me be clear, not .com. It's onecommunity.co. And there you can learn more about the for-profit side of the house of One Community. And if you're located in Arizona, you can also join the One Community's member-based coalition that works to promote diversity, inclusion, and equality for all Arizonans, really works to move that forward. You can also learn about their upcoming award ceremony to recognize business and community heroes and just visit onecommunityfoundation.org to learn more about the nonprofit side of the house. There at onecommunityfoundation.org, you can also sign the Unity Pledge. It is the largest equality pledge in the nation. Now, kind of interesting because it's for the state of Arizona, but it is the largest equality pledge in the entire country. Finally, 
If you really want to sign that pledge and you want to check out another website, openaz.co, not com, openaz.co. Businesses and organizations who sign the Unity Pledge are also offered a complimentary listing on one community's website. Last of all, Angela mentioned the Unity Summit. It is coming up from October 12th to October 23rd. I believe there's going to be about eight sessions that deal with corporate responsibility and create opportunities for partners to move policy forward. Hey, Angela, I am so thrilled after having known you now for about a year, year and a half to get you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, Delph, I can't thank you enough, number one, for your friendship. It's been such a joy to get to know you. And I love the work that we've been able to do together and our really robust conversations. So as always, I thank you for the opportunity, my friend. Thank you. If you were just dreaming about how to expand your nonprofit by creating a for-profit, or if you're a small business owner and dreaming about how to really achieve your vision by adding a nonprofit onto it, and you missed those URLs, don't worry about it. Just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and we have all of those URLs in the show notes. While you are there, please make sure that you sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Let me share with you, we only send out once a week. We never spam. We never sell your list. It is a great way to make sure that you are staying in touch. And also, as long as you're on our website, we are still running the listener survey. Obviously, you're a podcast listener, so please take three, four, or five minutes to fill out our listener survey. I have to share with you, we really work hard to make sure that our guests and our topics meet your needs. And you can help us know if we're doing that, and you can also help us know some ways that we can be doing it better, because we can all do our work just a little bit better. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.